Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 104 of the new Ice City Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and the track you just heard to intro this show on this week's episode came from Brett McEckern. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, Brett. Brett sent me his track, and I want to make sure that I properly give his band a plug as well. He is a member of the Quaker Gun Club who just released their debut album, Vanity Project, last month. It's available on all streaming platforms, and I definitely dig that track from Brett. So, Brett, thank you, thank you, thank you. Really appreciate you joining in as we continue to cycle through all these new intro tracks. And it's going to be really competitive, folks. There's a lot of good ones that have come through so far, a lot more that I have to get to. And it's going to be really difficult deciding on which one we choose as the permanent track moving forward. A lot of time before we make that decision. And of course, I will solicit some input from all of you before we do that. Now, our guest on this week's episode is going to be Kevin Woodley from In Goal Magazine. Kevin is one of the people who I trust most to break down, analyze, dissect goalies around the league. He follows everybody really, really closely. You've heard him on this show once before. I wanted to reach out and have him on because we saw for a few weeks coming out of the All-Star break that Igor Shosturkin was having some struggles. And now what we've seen in the last few games is that Igor seems to be trending very much in the opposite direction, on the upswing. So I want to get Kevin in to break it all down, tell us what he saw maybe going wrong with Igor a little while ago and where he's seeing improvements recently. So we're going to have some heavy goalie talk on this week's episode. Now, before we get to that, I want to talk about what's going on with the team. And at the time of this recording on Wednesday, March 15th, we're coming off of what to me was the Rangers' best performance, certainly since the trade deadline. Looking back on it, I was thinking probably in a month. The the last game I thought of was that game in Carolina. I want to say it was on February 11th. So that's over a month ago. They, they blew out the Hurricanes in that game with a really tremendous third period. A lot of you will remember, I think it was a 6-2 to two game. So to me, the 5-3 to three win that the Rangers had over the Capitals at Madison Square Garden on Tuesday night was the best performance that we've seen since then. So again, we're talking over a month. And it didn't finish maybe ideally the way you would have liked it to. There was definitely a dip that a lot of the guys and, and Coach Gerard Gallant after the game talked about after they built a 4-1 to lead. It seemed like maybe they took their foot off the gas pedal a bit. But you go back and you watch that first period, the Rangers were absolutely flying, clicking on all cylinders, all of that talent, Vladimir Tarasenko contributing Patrick Kane contributing, a lot of the stalwart key guys that have been on this team for a long time, making very valuable contributions. It just looked like everything was working for them. And we've heard repeatedly Gerard Gallant talk about wanting to play faster. Well, they looked fast. They looked crisp. They looked like a force to be reckoned with in that first period. They came out of that period with a 3-1 to lead, the, the one goal was an absolute snipe shot from the Capitals that you really can't fault the Rangers too much on, I don't think. And you look at how the shot totals came out of that period. The Rangers were up 19-9 to nine on shots after that first period. According to the natural stat trick, they generated seven high-danger scoring chances in the first period alone, which is a huge number, and they didn't allow any. It just looked like they were in complete control All four lines were flying. I thought especially in the first period, the top line, the new look top line, we've had a lot of new look top lines, but the top line that we saw in that first period, which featured Panarin, Zabanajad, and Tarasenko, was really, really good. They obviously produced two goals. Mika scored both of those. He's up to a team-high 34 on the season so far this year. But the way he was working with those guys, too, It just made you feel like, okay, they're starting to understand each other. Him and Tarasenko connected on the first goal, and it was such a a pretty play when you dissect it because Mika carries the puck into the offensive zone, 
and sort of does this little drop pass to Tarasenko. And Mika, he's so smart in these situations, he slides back into the slot, and rather than continuing to skate forward, he stopped on a dime, and Tarasenko knew exactly where he was going to be, got the puck right back to him, and it was a pretty easy one-timer for Mika. So it just showed how well aware those guys were in that moment of where the other one was going and how they would be able to finish that play effectively. And so I thought that was a tremendous sign. And then the second goal, you got to give Igor Shesterkin a ton of credit for that one. He flips that puck over the defense all the way. It looked like it landed on the fly at the far blue line, right in stride to Panarin, who then makes one of those nifty Panarin backhanded passes to Mika, who's charging the net and is able to get another finish. So those guys were definitely clicking. But I really thought that all four lines had their moments in that game. And it makes you think that maybe, just maybe, Gerard Gallant has found the combinations that they need to stick with. I I still think there's at least a decent chance we're going to see some more experimentation in the next few weeks. Now, of course, is the time to do it because once we get to within 8, 9, 10 games of the playoffs, you'd like to be settled. They've got 15 games remaining right now. So these next handful of games are, if you are going to try different things, now is kind of the only time you have to do that. But Gallant warned while we were away in Buffalo over the weekend that he he wanted to give those lines that we saw last week a chance to work because he knew that that's what the players wanted to do and he wanted to show trust in the players. But he was clearly frustrated with the way that they were playing, especially that line with Panarin and Kane together. We know that those guys think highly of each other. We know that they had success together in Chicago. But they were turning the puck over way too often. They weren't producing very much offensively. The whole team wasn't producing very much offensively. And he decided during the third period of the game against Buffalo on Saturday to start shaking things up. And by the time they got to Sunday, what we were seeing was the top line that we just spoke about with Panarin, Zibanejad, and Tarasenko. He moves Kreider down to play with Trocek and Kane, and that line not only produced the tying goal to force overtime on Sunday in Pittsburgh, they also, I thought, looked really good, and the stats back this up as well, in that game against the Capitals on Tuesday, and I wrote about this on Monday. The kid line has been struggling for a pretty decent stretch right now. It's 16 games and counting without a goal for Philip Heedle. If you look at the numbers as far as scoring for and against while they're on the ice, they've been outscored by a pretty significant margin in the last handful of weeks as a line. But even though they don't get a goal on Tuesday, I thought they had some really positive shifts, some shifts to build on, some long offensive zone possessions where they were able to control the puck and make some things happen. So that was encouraging for them. And the fourth line of VC, Goudreau, and Mott has been, I think, really the Rangers' best for the last three games. Ever since Mott came back from his upper body injury, those guys have been clicking. They, they really have a good grasp on what their role is. They're bringing a lot of energy. They're forechecking. They're defending. And they're doing all the little things in the offensive zone to create some chances. They're attacking the net. They're, they're chasing down pucks. They're causing havoc in front of the goalie. That line has looked really effective. So all together now, these four lines that we're discussing – it looks like, okay, you got to leave this until they do something to prove otherwise because right now it looks like it's clicking. Multiple players said this after the game against the Capitals, and uh, the quote from Patrick Kane especially stood out to me. He said, this is the standard moving forward. The way that we saw them play in that first period against Washington where they were flying and they were in control and they were creating chances and they weren't turning the puck over a lot and they weren't giving up a whole lot going the other way, That is what they need to strive for. You know, Mika Zibanejad was talking about it after the game, and he said, it's not always going to be possible to play that way for a full 60 minutes and be that much in control for a full 60 minutes, but it's what they need to strive for. And so we've sort of seen the blueprint now, and that is the overwhelmingly positive news surrounding this team on top of, as I mentioned at the top, and we're going to talk about a lot more with Kevin soon, Igor Shosturkin, starting to look a lot more like the Igor that we saw last year. Prior to that game against the Capitals, it's 
it's interesting because the team was getting results. They had five points in the three games, so five out of six points on that road trip where they played in Montreal, Buffalo, and Pittsburgh. But they went to OT in all three of those games. They had a rally back in the two wins after starting the game slow or having stretches during the game where they really didn't look great. And Gallant was really open about not loving the way that they were playing. They looked disjointed at times, talked talked about the turnovers, talked about the leaky defense. The offense had kind of dried up. They only had five even-strength goals over the course of four games prior to the Tuesday win over the Capitals. So there was a lot of things where you just felt like the gears were grinding and they weren't really clicking. And we've talked about this. We talked about this last week. You need to be patient because there are these new pieces. There are all these moving parts right now. They're trying to figure out line combinations. They're trying to learn each other on the fly. So I don't think it's fair to judge them too harshly for some of those games where the efforts looked incomplete. But now you have a very encouraging sign after that Tuesday night game, as I mentioned, with 15 games to go. So let's see if they can build on it. You'd like to see them stack some of these encouraging performances on top of one another right now. And the games are going to keep coming fast and furious. The schedule is unrelenting in this last little less than a month of the season that we have remaining. They've got three games coming up in the next four nights. That includes hosting the Penguins on Thursday and Saturday at Madison Square Garden. It seems like they have these three out of fours all the time. It seems like that's pretty much all they play these days. But if they take care of business in these next two games against the Penguins, they'll put themselves in pretty comfortable position as far as locking up third place in the Metro division. If if they lose these two games to Pittsburgh, then all of a sudden it gets interesting because Pittsburgh is the team that is kind of chasing them right now. But if they win these two games, I think you feel really good about the chance of them staying in third place, not having to go to a wild card spot where they would potentially have to play the first place team in either division. And you feel good about, okay, in these next 13, 12 games that you have remaining, you can work out the kinks Maybe try to find ways to rest guys. And and as we talked about last week, I think the main way that they're going to rest guys, and Gerard Gallant spoke about this a little bit after practice on Wednesday, is using all four lines equally. Now that the fourth line has a lot of confidence from the coach, you see him much more willingly cycling those lines instead of leaning so heavily on the top six or the top nine. So I think that's going to be a good way for them to keep guys fresh as well down the stretch. But of course, they're going to want to take care of business in these next couple games. Now, there's one more thing I want to address before we get to Kevin. And this is something that it's, I want to get it off my chest because it's been bothering me a little bit and I want to paint a full picture for you guys because as we've talked about before uh, on this show, I think more than anywhere else is where I feel like I can maybe be a little vulnerable sometimes and maybe let you guys know what's going on behind the scenes or what's going on in my head or, or where I stand on one issue or another. And It's become pretty public in recent weeks that the goalies in particular have been reluctant in these post-game settings to to do interviews. And there have been ongoing frustrations about a lot of this stuff, the post-game settings especially, behind the scenes, and, and they were sort of boiling over a little bit on this trip over the weekend. So where I think I made a misstep was I responded to a tweet on Sunday night from Pittsburgh about Yaro Halak declining to speak after that game. And I noted that there have typically been very few players available in these post-game settings. It wasn't something that I planned on. It was definitely a heat of the moment type of thing. As I said, you know, a lot of us were talking about it. We were frustrated about it. And and I think I just sort of reacted in that moment. But I was quickly reminded, you should always think twice before you hit send. Who was it that it said that? I think it was Herm Edwards on ESPN is the gift that's always going around. Twitter is great for many things. I love it. I use it as a very effective tool. It's critical for my job. I love interacting with you guys on there, but it is not the place many times for nuance. And what I quickly realized was one vague tweet leaves a lot of room for interpretation or misinterpretation. And I I began to feel badly about it pretty quickly after I saw the reaction. I want to be 
really clear about this. I, I, I truly, truly did not mean this as an attack on the players. I noted in that tweet, and I've written about it since, that they've been super welcoming on practice days. I think that's led to a lot of the deeper dive stories that you've seen this season, and that's been so refreshing, and I'm so appreciative of that. Like All these guys pretty much are at their lockers and willing to spend time with you on these practice days. Now, as you get deeper into the season, the practice days are fewer and further between, but those days have been, from a coverage standpoint and from me feeling like I'm able to produce good content for you guys, those have been awesome. While noting that, my intention was to urge more working together to make it a better post-game situation as well, with, again, the main focus being to provide the best coverage possible for all of you. But in retrospect, tweeting about it, I believe, was a distasteful approach on my part. Again, it was more of a in-the-moment reaction than a well-thought-out response, and typically... I think especially when you have eyes on what you're doing, that's not the right way to go about it. It's a, probably a lesson that many people, whether you're a reporter or an athlete or whatever, have learned at one point or another. It's a lesson that I, I feel like I probably learned in the past, but you have a misstep every now and then, and I, I do believe that it was a misstep on my part. As I've had some time to think about it, the, the biggest regret for me is not waiting till one of those practice days that I mentioned where we have great access and we're able to sit down with players and talk about all kinds of stuff and trying to address it with maybe some of the players themselves in that setting and ask for their perspective. Going public with a tweet was probably jumping the gun on that situation rather than trying to have a conversation first. And again, that's a lesson for a lot of people. We get into these arguments or we, we want to use a hot take on Twitter or on social media and if you sit back and you think about it and you try to have real in-person conversations with people, I think that's always going to be the better way to go. So I definitely got caught up in the frustration at the moment, felt the need to chime in. It's an instinct, I'm sure. We've all felt it at various points about one topic or another. But for me, this definitely served as a reminder that I, I want to be better, I need to be better, and I wanted to express that to you guys. It's definitely a lesson learned. And I wanted to just take a moment here and kind of raise my hand and say, I wish in retrospect, which, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I wish now having thought it all through and, and talked to a few people about it, that I had gone about that differently. And I wanted to take a moment here to kind of let you guys know where I'm at. Again, my intention, I promise, was not to attack anyone in particular. It was to say, hey, I think we can all do a better job of working together because I, I feel very strong and prideful about trying to bring you guys the best coverage and the best post-game reaction that we possibly can. And, and that is where my heart is at. That was where I was coming from. And I think had I maybe pulled a player to a side and talked to them about that, that it probably would have been received differently. But I feel like, you know, that in the moment, deciding to hit send on a tweet is probably not the way I should have played it. And again, I feel badly about that. So I wanted to I want to address that with you guys, make sure that, that you know where I was coming from when I did put that out there and, and hopefully give everybody a better understanding so that this can be more of a, a learning experience, I guess, not just for me, but so that you guys know where I'm coming from as well. All right, with that all being said, let's get back to some hockey talk and we're gonna shift right now to our interview with Kevin Woodley. Now let's welcome into the show one of my favorite guests to talk about goalies with, and he's going to help us talk about all things with Igor Shosturkin, the struggles that we saw from him in previous weeks, and some of the turnaround things that we've seen in the last handful of starts, and that would be Kevin Woodley. He writes for In Goal Magazine and NHL.com. So Kevin, how you doing out there in Vancouver? I'm good. I'm good. Spring is finally springing out here, so it's uh, it's happier times, although not so much. We don't have the excitement you would have there in New York in terms of you know, actual playoff hockey being around the corner. Has it, haven't had a lot of that out here in the last decade. Yeah, well, that is that is definitely everybody's focus right now. But interestingly, you mentioned the weather. We we hadn't really seen any snow here all season. And now all of a sudden yesterday we got some 
it felt like for the, I mean, we've had a few little flurries and stuff, but yesterday was probably the most significant, although it's all melted by today. So, well, you, let- you but you guys are, you're hardened East coasters. You can handle it, right? Yeah. Like we had snow this year. And honestly, like it's embarrassing to be a Canadian in Vancouver when it snows because everybody loses their mind. They were shutting down schools on like eight inches of snow, sh- shutting down roads on like, it's it's humiliating. It's uh, it really it, it breaks my heart as a Canadian how poorly we handle snow out here on the west coast. Well, so somebody told me that Vancouver gets less snow than like anywhere else in Canada. Yeah, like it's like once or twice a year, and it's usually not that much, and it's usually gone within a few days. But for those few days, let me tell you, the world stops out here. <laughs> and like I said, it's it's a little bit embarrassing. That reminds me of I was in Raleigh for a game a couple of years ago and it snowed. And in North Carolina, everybody's like, what what the hell is going on around here? So that, that was pretty funny to experience that. But that's another reason I love Vancouver. Vancouver is definitely one of my favorite Canadian cities. Had a great time out there last month. But all right, we're digressing here. Let's uh, let's talk some goalies. Let's talk some Igor. You know, just as kind of an overview Last year was such a historic season. I don't know if you want to kind of put into perspective for everybody the level of play that you saw him last year. We all know about the 935 save percentage, fourth all time among goalies, I think, with more than 40 starts in a season. So being at that level, it it felt unfair to expect him to maintain that or match that again this season. And that's obviously been the case. But for you, sizing that up, what you saw last year and leading into this year, was was that dip kind of expected, you think? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I I think you nailed it there with the word historic. Like, it was a historically good season. It was heart trophy worthy, frankly. Like, I mean, it should have been in that conversation. was in that conversation for a lot of people, right? Like, it was that good. I think if he finishes plus 940, as much as that's probably not a fair statistic, um, given that it doesn't account for the environment he's in, and, and the environment wasn't great last year, um, he's, he's winning the heart trophy. So like, it was such a good season. Um, that, yeah, I guess we should have, you know, been a little wary of the expectations it creates and how unrealistic it would be to hit that mark every year. There's a reason it's a historically good season, right? Like history tends not to repeat itself, especially on an annual basis. And so maybe that created some unfair expectations, uh, from our side on the outside looking in. And I think part of it was because like the things he did, the way he moved, like it was just so good, even from a goalie geek perspective, right? Like there were things he was doing um, in terms of movement patterns that we hadn't seen before. And interestingly enough, when you talked about being here recently, I you know, it was one of the questions I asked him about it, one of those movement patterns that we saw like, other goalies at junior try and emulate and copy. And he's like, Oh no, like that means I did it wrong. If I have to do that, like that was a, that was sort of an, in case of emergency break glass move for him. And yet other people were copying it. Like he just set a new standard and I think he looked so good doing it. The word hovercraft on the ice was one that we heard from Ian Clark for stories. I wrote, um, you know, I, I think maybe there was an expectation that that was sustainable because he made it look so easy in doing it. And that's not fair, right? Like, like that's not fair. And the one thing we don't account for is what those expectations do to him, like playing with those expectations that, that changes things, right? You can, and we can get into some of the things we see in his game and, and where maybe, you know, you can look at some of the technical elements and understand where the pressure And the expectations and what that does to a mindset can actually bleed into technique. Um, And I think it's fair to argue that that, that we may have seen some of that at times this season. The other part is, like, you correct me if I'm wrong here, because you know the team way better than I do, you know, popping in every once in a while to watch a game on the tube or when they come through town here. Um, But they're better defensively. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that he's not seeing as many shots on a nightly basis. And that's different. I'm not, it's not, I'm not trying to pretend it's harder. Um, every goal is going to tell you a better defensive environment and fewer shots is, 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 you know, favorable, but it's an adjustment nonetheless. And I think sometimes when you get into those, you know, like the expectations, a lot of nights were like, they were being outplayed and it was all on him. And yet there's a freedom that you can go out and play with that. Like, Hey, we're getting shelled here. We're getting outshot. I'm just going out and competing and playing. 
Um, your mind, it's easier to switch off a little bit when you're as busy as he was last year, when you're stopping bullets in your teeth on a regular basis and you don't have time to take a deep breath and think about it. You're just going out there and reacting and, you know, uh, a lot more time between shots and time to let the mind wander, time to let expectations creep in and those expectations being higher than they were based on last year. Like all of those things are adjustments that he has to make during the course of a season that, you know, is very different. I think you hit on two excellent points. Number one, I do think he puts a ton of pressure on himself. And I think that that his frustration over not being at the level that he was at last year has definitely been a prevalent thing on his mind and something that we've observed throughout the course of this season. And you touch on the shots. He's said this before. He likes to see a lot of shots. That helps him feel, I think, like he's in a rhythm. It helps him get into the game quicker. I know a lot of, a lot of goalies say that, but there's some truth to it. Now, obviously, you don't want to face 50 shots a night if you don't have to, but I do think that there is something to when he gets into that rhythm earlier in the game, he's going to be tougher to stop or he's going to be tougher to beat later in the game. And it doesn't mean that he can't make that adjustment. It just recognizing that it is an adjustment. We saw it with Jacob Markstrom his first year in Calgary. Um, when I liked the fit when they made the signing, but then they changed to Daryl Sutter and Jacob had to adjust to being less busy. And Lord knows here in Vancouver, he was never less busy, right? Like it was, mm -hmm. it was like Mark or sorry, like just Eric in there bullets in the teeth, like tons of shots, always busy, never have to worry about it. Pekka Rene, um, throughout his career, there was a point there where Peter Laviolette came in and as much as, you know, under Barry Trotz, they were considered this shutdown defensive team. They did give up a lot of shots, maybe not the quality, um, but they did give up a lot of shots. Um, and and Pekka found his way into a rhythm. And when Laviolette came in and the shots dropped, he really struggled with it. And so he had to find for him the way that he adjusted to not being busy with shots was to stay engaged with puck handling. So Pekka became almost infamous for getting out and not i don't mean just like passing the puck but getting out and stopping everything behind his net um to the point where i do a annual christmas column for nhl.com where i'm like hey like if you could have one thing from another goalie under the tree and in your game on christmas morning what would be mm -hmm. and i remember i think it was devin dubnik was like pekka renee's ability to stop rims behind the net he'd go flying into the boards in a butterfly he'd like slam like because that was Pekka's way of staying engaged in games where the shot clock didn't keep him engaged. And so, you know, it is a big adjustment. I hate to use this example, but it's just the easiest because it's the most famous. Curtis Joseph, at times in his career, arguably what should be a Hall of Fame career when you look at the win totals and some of the you know results he posted, um, man, you put him behind a team that was getting shelled where he was busy and he was unbelievable. But then he went to Detroit late in his career where they were the dominant team and he wasn't busy. And the way he played, the rhythm it required, the athleticism that he played with and sort of the timing that that he depended on all disappeared on him. And he just had a whole bunch of time back there to think about all the pressure he was under because he'd brought in, been brought in to be a finishing piece on a cup winning team. And arguably those were some of his worst seasons performance wise. And so not every goalie, as much as it's counterintuitive to say uh, uh, an easier defensive environment, fewer shots would benefit every goalie. Not every goalie is comfortable in them. And it sounds like that's been an adjustment for Igor Shesterkin. He's not alone in that category, but because it's so counterintuitive, I think people have a tough time coming to sort of understand it and come to grips with the fact it can actually be harder to be in an easier environment. It's, it almost makes me think just thinking to how the Rangers have been playing in the last few weeks prior to this last game or so, especially that Washington game on Tuesday where they looked really good. They were giving up more defensively. They were giving up too many turnovers that were leading to odd man rushes. And it was actually putting more pressure on the goalies. And all of a sudden, then you saw Igor, take off again. So I wonder if all of a sudden, maybe he starts seeing more shots. He starts getting put in more of those pressure situations and that, that helped him get his timing back. That helped him rediscover some of the, the great stuff that we saw from him last year. So when you look at last year to this year, whether it's technical, whether it's statistically, are, are there things that, that you're seeing from him that you think have led to this sort of coming a little bit back down to earth uh, this season? 
Well, statistically, like I said, like last year was, you know, I mean, I pulled up the, the numbers and and I'm I'm lucky enough to have access to ClearSight Analytics through Stephen Valakat. And so you can really see the adjusted numbers and like there's not a negative number there last year. Like they're all off the charts. Um, red numbers are bad. Blue numbers are good. Igor's chart is just loaded with blue. Um, there's not a lot of red numbers this year. So he's not like, you know, the red is when you get into the quite a bit below expected. But there's more black numbers, which is sort of just around or just below or above expected. And those are all numbers that were off the charts good last year. Like breakaways is one where he's off the charts good last year, not so much this year. Slot line plays, east-west plays, things that you would think he would eat up because that movement is so crisp. Like like I mentioned the hovercraft thing, um, slightly below expected last year. He was a full almost eight goals above expected last year uh, compared to this year. So um, some big changes changes their slot area he's really good in both years um in terms of technically i'll be honest i'm gonna lean on valakat a little bit too and this is just fortuitous we were having a conversation for the ingle radio podcast he's my guest this week and always love catching up with him and we talked a little bit about igor shishterkin uh in the context of a conversation we were having about the importance of stance and stance mechanics for goaltending and how his students when they leave for a season the ones that are going to play college or or even prep schools where they're out of town and then they come back in the fall they've always widened out their stance like they always come back wider and it's one of the things that he's noticed. I'm not going to take any credit for this, but he's noticed a little bit in Shesterkin's game. And it sounds like he's done some breakdowns on MSG sort of showing this. Um, they've got some video guys can actually measure it. And that Igor's a little widened out. And you know, that may not, I mean, it could be inches, but when we talk about stance mechanics, we talk about Igor's ability to sort of have that hovercraft mentality out there and how well he moves both on his skates and on his knees. Like he moves as well, on his knees as a lot of goalies move on their skates. And he also moves on his skates better than almost any goalie this side of UC Soros. But as soon as you start to widen out your stance, you do a bunch of, there's a bunch of things that, that happens. One, you tend to dig into your edges a little bit more. Um, and so if you're more loaded in your edges, if you need to, for example, make a T push, and I'm sure your audience all knows what a T push is. Um, if you've got that, say I want to move to my left and I've got those edges dug in on each side. So I'm a little lower. I'm a little wider. I've got my edges a little more into the ice. In order to move to my left, I have to sort of pull my body up a little bit away, more than I would if my feet were underneath me to disengage that left edge before I push in that direction. And now the leg I'm pushing with, my right leg, obviously, because it's further out, it's wider, I've lost access to power, right? Because that, the, you know, I mean, just this sheer mechanics of pushing require extending the leg. Well, the further and wider out it is, the less extension I have left to make. The harder it is for me to get rotation, top-down rotation into my mechanics, which allows me to stay square as I move around the ice. Again, that back to that hovercraft, his ability to move on his knees and on his skates. So and then the other thing that that you see when you get dug in a little low and wide, and this can be like, almost imperceptible unless like, like really hard to see in real time, unless you're doing what Valakat did, unless you're digging in and you're, you're sort of looking at freeze frames of the same spot on the ice and, and compare it to last year and, and, and measure how far out the skates are. It also tends to lower us relative to height. And we're seeing, you know, so you're not as tall in your chest. You tend to get a little leaned over. You make yourself smaller, um, we're seeing again, more clear sighted shots have beaten Igor this year than last year. Um, significantly worse numbers in that regard. So I, I think that's, you know, stance feels so many elements in a goaltender's game. And we've seen as the games become more dynamic East West goalies learning, they need to sort of keep their feet under them, stay narrow more often. Um, it fuels a lot of good things. And if you dig in and widen out even slightly, it can have a serious negative impact on your game. Now, why might this be happening? Um, cause, cause looking at Valakat's breakdown, it seems pretty hard to argue it, it, you know, like that it wasn't, it, it, it's pretty clear it was happening. So why? Well, the one thing about goaltending and I'll equate this to golf. Like if, if any of your audience golfs, how does it usually go when you try harder? Not well like, for me. Not well yeah. for me. <laughs> like golf is rarely a sport where you can just load her up and say, like, I'm giving this the old steroid jerk here. Like, I'm just going to swing out and they're like, I'm going to try so hard. Right. Like, 
goaltending's the same way. Like there's a goalie coach here in Vancouver, Ian Clark, who's uh, quite well respected up there with the Benoit Lairs uh, of the world in terms of the way he's regarded. Um, and he always says tension is the enemy of goaltending. And so what do we do when we're trying harder as goaltenders? We have a tendency to get a little more locked in, a little more tensed up because it feels active. It feels reactive. It feels spring loaded, but what it doesn't allow you to do is to relax and let the game come to you. And it's the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to do, but that try harder. And what are you going to do if you're facing increased expectations? If you're thinking, you know, and things don't go well, it's like, I got to be better than this because I was last year and I'm not as busy. Your mind can wander. The other guy's stopping bullets in his teeth now at the other end of the ice and you're bored. Geez, I better stop that next one because this guy's playing great down there. It all adds tension. It all adds that desire to sort of, I got to try a little harder. And it rarely works. It's much like golf. It's like swinging harder. It just doesn't work. We add that tension. We widen out. We dig in. And now we've affected the foundation of our game. Even if it's ever so slightly from a biomechanical perspective, it bleeds into all these other elements. That split second that it takes to disengage that lead edge before we push in that direction that we didn't have to before. Just not having the tension in the body and being able to move in a more relaxed state. Again, what do we think of when we think of a hovercraft and the way he moved around the ice last year? He made it look so easy. Trying harder is, is really tough to avoid especially when you're facing increased expectations. And yet the results for trying harder typically look a lot like what we're seeing right now in terms of just a little bit wider, a little more dug in, a little more spring loaded things that in our mind as goalies, we think of as positives, but quite often the opposite is true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think Rangers fans are, are hopeful and that, that's all fascinating stuff. And Valley is the best. We actually had a conversation on the phone about some of this stuff a couple of weeks ago and, and he can dive so deep into this stuff as you can, which is, which is great. Cool. So he, imagine what the two of us together yeah, are like, that's can, the next episode of the Ingo radio podcast. Make sure you've set aside a couple hours for that. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably a long one I would guess, but uh, yeah. So he talked a lot about stance too, and it all kind of starts there and maybe what we're seeing and I don't have the expert eye that you guys do, but maybe what we're seeing in these last few games. And I think what Rangers fans are hopeful for is that he is tightening some of that stuff up. I thought his start Saturday in Buffalo, where he allowed, I think one goal on 33 shots was the best that we've seen from him in, in recent memory in a month or so, I would say definitely since the all-star break for sure. So step in the right direction he gave up three goals Tuesday against Washington, but it also felt like he made some really key saves, especially late in that game when the Capitals had a couple power plays and he had to stand up tall. So it looks like it's trending in the right direction. I'm sure that you would still put him very high on the list of best goalies in the world if you're talking about that right now. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, And this is the thing. This is why... This is why Andre Vasilevsky still tops that list. And I was one of the people that was like, hey, like Igor Shosturkin's right there with him. Like, could we have a new number one? And this is why it's important not to jump to the same with Thatcher Demko. Like he had a hell of a year last year, right? And look what happened this year. And obviously some of that was injury, but um, in an era where there's so much volatility in the position, uh, two things we overlook durability, the ability to be selected is a key ability as a number one goaltender and consistency. Those are really hard things to do. And it's really hard to expect that out of the gate. And it's why Vasilevsky tops the list because on a year in year out basis, um, he's constantly available for selection. Nobody sort of plays more, especially when you consider the playoffs and he stays consistently in that top five in terms of all the numbers. And so, um, if it was easy to be Andre Vasilevsky, everybody would do it. Right. So, um, Shesterkin, even in what we would consider a down year relative to last year is still like 13th and goal saved above expected. Um, you know, he's, he's still top 20 in adjusted save percentage. And I think more to the point, I don't think he's lost any of the abilities that allowed him to be historically good last season. We've seen it in stretches. You're talking about how he's playing right now. And the key is just to find whether it's mindset or technical, whichever one is fueling or triggering that slight alteration from last season. And maybe it's being able to see video and recognize the difference in the physical and understanding why you maybe feel, you know, why that tendency can be there based on the psychological, like for what, whatever the reason is, whatever the key is to get him back to sort of feeling the way he felt before, like it's all there. Like, it's not like he forgot how to play goal. I think when you watch him play 
beyond all the incredible physical tools, it's pretty clear he reads the game really well as well. So um, yeah, a hundred percent. I haven't changed my opinion on where he ranks uh, amongst the best of the best. There's been a lot of conversation this year about, geez, like how many goalies will we say are legitly elite number one in the NHL? Like have we lost um, that upper echelon? Are we seeing a smaller elite tier? And to which I would argue like, yeah, because Carey Price isn't playing. Roberto Luongo retired. Like there's a lot of top end guys who used to be the 70 game goalies that have left in the past three or four seasons. Um, I still put Shesterkin in that conversation, even if statistically this year he's in a, you know, he's dropped into a tier slightly below it. Uh, doesn't change where I rank him among the best in the game. Mm hmm. Kevin, this has been great. L last thing, maybe just a quick one before you go, because I know when we were in Vancouver, you spent some time with Yaro Halak. Rangers fans were on him early in the season because he got off to a slow start. He's been really steady, and he's been pretty much everything you'd want from a backup. He can play sparingly. He'll usually give you a good competitive game. He's been winning at a pretty high rate since I think he lost his first five or six, whatever it was, starts of the season. So anything from your time that you spent with him that especially at his age, 37 years old, still hanging on strong in the league that, that stood out to you about the longevity and how he's able to maintain th this pretty good level of play, especially for a backup? I mean, he reads the game so well, right? And like, and one of the things I did with him here in Vancouver is we did a video session. We spent 30 minutes going over saves from this year where he walked us through sort of his thought process, why he chooses the depth, he chooses the save selection, the post integration, what factors lead to that, how he's reading off opponents, how he's reading off the defensive structure in front of him. He's such a smart goalie after all these years. And, you know, like interestingly enough, I know like you said, Rangers fans were on him, but on a whole on the season, his adjusted save percentage, way smaller sample. So you won't see it show up in the goals saved above expected. But on a sort of shot by shot basis, his adjusted save percentage is actually just a hair better than Shesterkins is this season. Like he's been really good. And you know what? He was really good here in Vancouver last year and they miss him um, because he kind of got crapped on here when the team wasn't winning and he was in that. But again, his performances weren't the problem. His adjusted numbers were great. Um, and now without him, you're, you you saw what happened when Demko went up. The season basically got cratered. So uh, listen, like he's a pro's pro um, and his ability to read the game is why he has had the success he's had for so many years at the size, like Yarl Halak's a guy who might not even get drafted in today's NHL and look at the career he's got. I know he's very motivated by 300 wins. He's only got seven left to get there. Um, I would suggest, and, and I will add the caveat that I don't know what's, what's up in the farm system and what might be next for the Rangers. But if he's happy there and he seems to be based on my conversations with him, uh, another year behind this team, he'd only be more comfortable in terms of the reads he makes are so much based off the structure in front of him. And that can take time early in a season, which may help explain why there was a slow start. If you're looking for a perfect sort of, you know, guy who won B, but could also give you some stretches if you needed to give Igor a break in the coming seasons, like, you could do a lot worse than Yaroslav Halak. And I don't I don't see him slowing down because he takes really good care of himself. You've seen that. Um, but just how well he reads the game and how effectively he uses his size. And uh like if if you're a goalie geek and 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 you or you're a goalie or a young goalie, like um we've got those pro reads with him. We've done one, we've got about five more coming up where you know, even the way he uses paddle down, uh, a sort of disappearing trend in the game where he drops the paddle. And you think of it as making yourself smaller. He actually uses paddle down and Rangers fans to keep an eye out for this. When he goes, say, left to right, he uses a paddle down technique to not only sort of protect his five hole in those cross crease moments in tight, but he actually uses it to make himself bigger. He locks that right arm when he drops into it, which keeps his shoulders high rather than allowing him to pitch forward as he gets off balance, moving in one direction. And by using the stick to close the five hole, it forces him to bring that shoulder around, which creates upper body rotation and allows him to get that chest square to the puck on the back door. So there's a, there's a, Paddle down technique is something that's almost like a lost art in the NHL. And here's this, this goaltender at this age that's showing me something completely new in terms of why he uses it, how he uses it, and why it's effective in both creating the type of rotation we want that allows him to square up over top of a backdoor chance and make himself taller 
by using that five hole seal to also prop up his chest where a lot of other goalies would come across without it and might have a tendency to reach and open up and pitch their torso forward and lose a lot of the coverage he's generating. So just one small example that we had at in goal through the video session of just how smart a goalie he is. And that's, I think why he's had the success he's had. And again, yeah, the eight, there's going to be another year on the birth certificate next year. Um, but I know where that drive is like in terms of 300 wins and how important that is to him. And all these things I talked about in terms of reading the game, you don't lose that with the year. Like those things all remain intact. And so I don't see him slowing down and the level he's played at in a backup role and a job playing every couple of weeks. It's not easy for every goalie to adjust to. Um, there's a lot of value in that to me still for Yaroslav Halak, whether it's with the Rangers or elsewhere. Awesome. Awesome. Kevin, that was great stuff. You could, you could feel your passion in that. So definitely let everybody know where you can hear that podcast with Valley again. Uh, well, I mean, everything sort of runs through Ingle Magazine's website. I mean, you can, you can search Ingle Magazine or Ingle Radio Podcast on any podcast provider and you'll see it. We're 208 episodes in, including a beauty one hour episode with Henrik Lundqvist from last summer that I will tease that episode was listened to by Linus Almark, which allowed or helped Linus get more buy-in to some of the changes the goalie coach with the Boston Bruins, Bob Asenza, was trying to make in his game. That interview with Lundquist helped him get on board with those changes and in a small way has contributed to a Vesna Trophy, what I expect to be a Vesna Trophy winning season this year. So in Goal Radio, the podcast, if you search that up on a podcast provider, the rest of the stuff, the video, the breakdowns and everything, you can find it in goalmag.com. Awesome. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for the time. Stay well out there in Vancouver. Enjoy the, the good weather because I know Vancouver is beautiful probably once the spring comes. So definitely enjoy that and we'll talk soon. Yeah, sounds good. I'll live vicariously through you when it comes to missing the playoffs out here. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll take care of it for you. Welcome back, and thanks to Kevin for that really incredibly detailed conversation, not just about Igor Shesterkin, but goaltending as a whole. As you can tell, this guy sleeps, eats, breathes this stuff. He's so into it. He's so fascinating to talk to, and he can, in my opinion at least, talk to you about these things that can be very technical and sort of in the weeds, but talk about them in a way that you can understand them. And that's why I love having him on and thought that he would be a great guest to dive into what we've seen from Igor this season, what we've seen from Halak this season, and sort of put everything into a big picture perspective. But make no bone about it, Igor getting into top form, and it looks like he's trending in that direction right now, that is probably the number one thing on the Rangers' wish list as they head toward the playoffs, the number one X factor for the Rangers in the playoffs, just as it was last year. There's a lot of other really important things on this team. Obviously, getting the new guys integrated is also very high on that list. But getting Igor in top form, looking like one of the best goalies in the world, if the Rangers have that, then you have to really like the Rangers' chances in a series against pretty much anybody. Definitely what we're looking at as far as the first two rounds, where we would think maybe Jersey and Carolina or Carolina and Jersey if the Rangers have Igor in top form, they have a pretty clear advantage in both of those series. So definitely something to keep an eye on and glad we were able to break it down in depth on this week's show. Now let's move on to your Twitter questions. And by far, it seemed like the most popular topic this week was Ryan Lindgren. I didn't address it in the first segment of the show because I want to save it for now. And I'm going to read a couple questions here because... There are two separate topics regarding Lingren, and I want to address them both. The first one is, can you explain the long-term IR and why the Rangers didn't put Lingren on it? Wouldn't this have cleared them to bring someone up so they didn't have to play a man down for so many games? So here are my thoughts on that. First off, it's 10 games you have to be on long-term IR and 24 days. This next game... Gerard Gallant did say that Lindgren will not play Thursday against the Penguins. That will be his ninth full game out of the lineup. And the first game that he was out of the lineup was February 26th against the Los Angeles Kings. So we're looking at less than three weeks ago since he's been out. It's basically been 
two and a half weeks that he's been out. So you're talking like 17, 18 days so far. So he would have had to miss a few more games. Like let's say he can play on either Saturday or Sunday. The Rangers have back-to-back games this coming weekend. Had they put him on LTIR, they wouldn't have had that option for this weekend. So in retrospect, looking back on it, thinking, okay, maybe they'll get one or two extra games out of him versus what they would have had had they put him on LTIR. It probably would have been worth it to send him down had they had all the information that they have now. But I do truly believe that they thought he would be back sooner. Gerard Gallant basically said that today at the press conference, that he thought maybe he had a chance to be back a week ago. So I don't know if there's a setback. I don't want to speculate on that. I don't have any hard information on that. Lindgren did practice in full on Friday in Buffalo, and we spoke to him after that practice, and he said he felt like he was ready to go, but knowing that guy, I think he would say he felt ready to go if his arm was hanging by a thread. So, you know, not that I'm saying I don't want to take him at his word, but obviously I think he would be willing to play through quite a bit of pain. I think, and Gerard Gallant said this as well, They want to be extra careful with him. He's a critical part of this team, an underrated part, but definitely a critical part of this team. I think that's become increasingly evident in the time that we've seen him out, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more based on the next question. But you want to play it safe. You have 15 games remaining in the regular season. You need him as close to 100% for the playoffs as possible. Even if he's at 90% right now, I don't see the big rush in trying to get him back. If you were battling and scratching and clawing just to make it into the playoffs right now, I think it might be a different story. But even though the Rangers want to take care of business against Pittsburgh in these next two games, and if they don't, things could get a little hairy. Regardless, they look like a very safe bet to make the playoffs. I think last I looked, their odds were like 93% to make the playoffs. So they're comfortably in right now. And I think that gives you the ability to take the cautious approach, the wise approach with a guy like Lindgren clearly. And and maybe this happens sometime after that Friday practice, a determination was made that either he wasn't feeling as good as they wanted him to, or they wanted to give him a little extra time to heal. And I don't think anything's wrong with that. Like a lot of people seem to be really upset about this move. I think That is the prudent approach. That is the proper approach. And yes, had you put him on LTIR, you would have been able to call somebody up that would have helped you during those three games when Keandre Miller was suspended. But other than that, the Rangers, since Miller got back, have been able to ice a full lineup because they have a seventh defenseman already on the roster in Ben Harper. So had they called up another defenseman, Harper still would have been the guy playing. The extra defenseman, Libor Hayek, or whoever it would have been, would have been a healthy scratch. So I don't think they put themselves at this tremendous disadvantage. Obviously, again, for those three games when Miller was suspended, it would have been very helpful to be able to call up a defenseman. But that was very early in the lingering injury stage. And at that point, this, I think Miller was suspended the game after Lindgren got hurt. At that point, I think they were still optimistic that Lindgren wouldn't come close to the 10 games and 24 days that are required if you go on LTIR. So obviously the timeline is extended beyond, I think what they were hoping for initially, but rushing him back for the sake of getting him into the lineup when he's not a hundred percent, I think that would be a bigger mistake than the LTIR thing. Again, if they had all the information they have now, sure. Would you put them on there? Yeah, that's fine. It would be nice to have an extra skater around, no doubt about it. But I still think the lineup that we've seen for the last handful of games with Ben Harper as that sixth defenseman is what we would be getting even if Lindgren was on LTIR. So to me, I don't think this is something to really get all worked up about. I think... They probably misjudged it a little bit at first. They're adjusting on the fly, but I think they're adjusting for the right reasons. And for that, I I don't see a whole lot of validation behind being super critical about this move. It is what it is, I think. And it does sound like, I know we said this last week as well, but it does sound like he's getting close. So I think 
whether it's Saturday, Sunday, or maybe early next week at the latest, I think you will see him back pretty soon. Follow-up question to that, which is also Lindgren-related that I want to touch on here, is from Broadway Blue Shirts, who wrote, how big of an impact has Lindgren's injury had on Adam Fox's effectiveness, and what trickle-down effect have you seen throughout the decor? Well, this is an interesting question because you look at Adam Fox, and to me, for the first half of the season, this was a guy that had my Norris vote. I believe that he was the best defenseman in the NHL for that first half. But in recent weeks, and this even, I think, predates the Lindgren injury a little bit, he hasn't quite been popping off the screen at you or popping off the ice at you the way that he was earlier in the season where he seemed to make some of those wow, jaw-dropping plays that you know he's capable of making multiple times a night. Recently, he seems much less involved offensively, and the stats bear that out. He's got seven points in his last 12 games, which is very much off his point-per-game pace that he was at for most of the season. Lindgren was out basically for nine of those games, so I think there's definitely something to him not quite feeling as comfortable pushing up into the rush and pushing up into the offensive zone when Lindgren isn't in the lineup. I think Lindgren absolutely is a stabilizing presence for him who gives him the confidence to go and take some risks and make some plays. He's been mostly playing with Nico Mikola in the last few weeks, and that has kind of had its ups and downs. I think some games it's looked okay. I think some games not so much. I think it's a little unfair to Mikola This is a guy who the Rangers acquired to play on the bottom pair, and now he's being basically force-fed top pair or top two pair minutes against top lines for the opposing team, and and that's not the role that they envisioned for him when they got him. So I think in a bottom pair role, I would still feel pretty good about Mikola, but his limitations are a little bit more exposed in this kind of role. And you have to believe, even though I, I don't think Fox would necessarily come out and say this, you have to believe that Fox is maybe not quite as gung-ho or confident about trying to make some of the plays that he would make in a normal situation without Lindgren there. I also do wonder about the wear and tear, and and we've talked about this before. Fox is a guy who last season, and I know it was because he was nursing an injury last season. I, I don't know that he's injured or anything like that right now, but He's a guy that I think over the course of the season and when the Rangers went through these stretches where they were playing shorthanded for for multiple games in a row and all the defensemen had to play 25-plus minutes a night, I'm sure that takes a toll as well, makes him feel a little less spry, makes him feel a little more tired. I did ask him about that. We spoke last week, and I asked him about the feeling going into the playoffs and and the, the need to be rested and did that hurt the Rangers last year during the playoffs? He did feel like eventually he, he knew the exact amount of games and the exact amount of nights when the Rangers had played 20 games and 40 nights during the playoffs that yes, they were feeling it at the end. But he did say as far as the beginning of the playoffs this year, you're going to have so much adrenaline that he feels like no matter how tired you are, you're going to be able to kick it into gear. I'm sure there's some truth to that, but I also do wonder if this recent stretch where he's had to play quite a bit, if that is also affecting his play a little bit as well. Because again, he's just not looking as dynamic and not in control of the puck and not carrying the puck and making plays to the level that we're used to him making those plays. He's still been okay defensively. he's, He's a very strong defensive player. He doesn't get enough credit for that a lot of the time because of how much he jumps out at you offensively. But... What makes Adam Fox special is what he does offensively and and the capabilities that he has on the power play and at five-on-five in offensive situations. And you haven't seen a lot of that recently, and you have to believe that Lindgren being out has something to do with that, and you would hope that when Lindgren does return that that will give Fox a sense of comfort, a sense of normalcy, and that will get him going again. All right, let's get to... Our last question for the week, which comes from Eric Talvey, who asks, anything from the team or league on their thoughts slash impressions of how the Big City Greens Classic went? I thought it was great, the sort of innovative stuff hockey needs, and I hope they do it again soon. 
Now, Eric, of course, is talking about the simultaneous broadcast that ESPN did in cohorts with Disney, who, of course, owns ESPN, on Tuesday night for the game against the Capitals, where they had the normal broadcast. But simultaneously, they had a broadcast that was all animated characters. But they have the technology where they were able to almost exactly mimic location of players on ice and puck movement and actually show you what was happening in sort of this cartoon animated form. And I was a little skeptical about it, if I'm being honest, when I first heard about it. And obviously I'm at the garden watching the game in person, so I wasn't watching this broadcast, but I did see a lot of the clips and highlights from the animated game. And it was pretty cool. I mean, there was this weird glitch on Mika Zibanejad's second goal they actually did a great job of showing that long pass that Igor made in animated form. But then when Panarin went for that backhanded feed into the slot, they had some kind of a glitch where the puck all of a sudden went to the other end of the ice and then shot back toward the net where Mika was. So obviously there were a couple little hiccups, I'm sure, like that. But for the most part, it followed the action pretty well. And I have to tell you, I would have been curious to see how my son would have reacted to it. But I saw a lot of people who wrote in and sent pictures on Twitter and that kind of stuff, who talked about how much their kids were enjoying it. And to me, that's awesome. If you're one of those people who says that they're making a mockery of the game and they shouldn't be doing this, I I think that's nonsense. If they were only showing you the game in that way, okay, I would totally get people having a problem with it. But as an alternate viewing experience for the younger generation to potentially draw in some younger people who might not be able to sit there and watch a full hockey game in real life the way that we know and love it, but would be fascinated by this, what's the harm? To me, it was super cool. I think it was a really interesting, cool thing for them to try. And at least the feedback that I heard, and you know, this is mostly just Twitter, so I'm sure maybe there were some people that had a problem with it, but a lot of the feedback I saw from parents people with kids anywhere from it seemed like six months to like 10, 11, 12 years old, it seemed like the kids really dug this. So that's an awesome thing to me. And if now all of a sudden these kids are saying, hey, daddy, mommy, I want to watch more hockey. Well, that's a great thing for the league. That's a great thing for exposing this sport. I mean, we all know the truth. In this country, in the U.S., hockey is a pretty distant fourth when you look at the major sports, football, baseball, basketball. I know we all don't feel that way. We're immersed in this. We love it. But to grow the game, you got to try some new things sometimes. And whether or not this grows the game, I I don't know. I don't have the data to support that off of one of these type of things. But just anecdotally, it's a thing that people seem to really enjoy. And that's a cool thing. That To me, I have no issue with that whatsoever. It seems like Eric was in favor of it as well. Again, I heard from a lot of different people who really seem to enjoy it. And if it put a smile on any kid's face, to me, that's a win in my books. My son, I'm pretty sure, would have loved it, although I, I tweeted this last week. He is recognizing regular hockey and actually demanding now almost every time I turn on the TV that I put a game on. And I'm almost like, hey, bud, Dad watches hockey almost every other night. When I'm home, maybe I want to watch something different. And he's looking at me, hockey, hockey, hockey. So I have to oblige him, which means we end up putting on usually either Devils or Islanders if they're on, at least for a little while. And then we coax him into doing something else. He doesn't watch a ton of TV. He's not even two years old yet. He's not super into TV. But when he sees it goes on, he wants hockey. And the other funny, cute thing I'll tell you guys about is now – When I go to work, there's been two things he's been saying. Number one, when I'm leaving for the weekend, last year was tough because he didn't know why I was leaving on some of these trips. He would just cry and be upset when I would go. But now I think he has an understanding that daddy's going to work. And he knows when I say that I'm going away, like I was explaining to him before I left for Buffalo, daddy's going to go on an airplane. So he, he looks at me, he goes, dada, plane, dada, plane. And he points up at the sky. And, and my, uh, my fiance tells me that pretty much the whole weekend, every time they go outside and he sees a plane, he points up and says, dada, plane, dada, plane. So that's super cute. And when I leave to go to work, you know, even if it's just for the day, 
a lot of times if anybody asks him, where's Dada, he'll say hockey, hockey, hockey. So he, he knows that that's what Daddy does for work, which is also pretty cool. So I'm getting a little sidetracked here, but, you know, proud dad. Got to do it every once in a while. So anyway, I really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Kevin for coming on the show. Big thank you once again to Brett for submitting the track that you heard at the beginning of the show and you're about to hear once again right now. Brett sent me a couple, put some good work into it. I let him pick his favorite, and I think this one is really cool. We're going to have another new track for you next week. Make sure you go check out Brett's band. Let me pull up the name of it one more time, the Quaker Gun Club. And, yeah, appreciate you guys. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for hearing me out. Let me vent a little bit earlier in the show as well. We will be back next week to talk some more Rangers, talk some more hockey. But until then, enjoy the rest of your week, and I will talk to you soon.